Welcome to the BMJ Podcast. I'm Duncan Jarvis, Multimedia Editor here at the BMJ, and today we're talking about transgender healthcare. We've just published a practice article about how GPs can help patients access services, and a What Your Patient Is Thinking article about the experiences of transgender patients. And as to two of the authors of that last article, I'm talking today. Firstly, I have Emma Ben, and they're a clinical teaching associate at the John Radcliffe Hospital in Oxford. Hi, Emma Ben. Hi. And we also have Rubes, who's a transgender person and is now studying trans issues from a cognitive neuroscience perspective. Hi, Rubes. Hi. Um, thank you both uh, for taking the time to talk to me today. Um, the first question I have is really, uh, why is it that you decided to write this um, Wipe It, What Your Patient Is Thinking article uh, for the BMJ? Um, and Ben, maybe if I could ask you that first. Mm. So um, I'd actually written for the Wipe It before, the, 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 the first article when it was, was launched, um, uh, Why There's No Point Telling Me To Lose Weight. And um, in that article, I do not talk anywhere about, um, about being trans. In fact, um, I've never told um, any doctor that I'm interacting with before that, that I am trans. Um, but that very fact that I've managed to get through um, 31 years of um, healthcare with every doctor I've interacted with, um, assuming that I am a, a cisgender lady, um, seemed uh, like a like a good like a good starting point for um, shining a spotlight on why it might be that I would uh, keep that a secret as a trans patient. Sure. Um, and Rubes, did you have any particular um, motivation to do this? Yeah, absolutely. I. Uh... I think um, sort of almost the opposite uh, from Emma Ben is is that I uh, all all the doctors that I've interacted with since I came out as trans have known um, in large part because of trying to access medical transition um, and um, also because um, perhaps I'm a little bit less pragmatic than. Uh, but they are about, let's say, uh, what name is used on forms or uh, that sort of thing. So I'm a little bit more likely to go, actually, do you know what, that's really annoying me and I want that put right. So Rubes, how do you identify yourself now? Um, in terms of my gender, I'm a genderqueer trans woman. And Emma Ben? Yeah, I like um, genderqueer as a, f- a phrase as well. Um, I also use non-binary sometimes although that's defining myself in terms of what i'm not but um it's uh legible to some people um and rubes when was it that you decided to talk to doctors about it and and start down the process of of some medical intervention initially i didn't uh really know exactly what i wanted to do about it i spent a long time not realizing um because i didn't know that it was possible to be to be trans and certainly not to exist outside of the binary in the way that I do. Uh, at some point I got very depressed and started to figure out what was going on and thought, well, uh, I should talk to an expert basically. However, by the time I actually got to the gender clinic was maybe two or even three years after I was initially referred. By that time I already knew quite a lot about what I wanted 
Um, so I, I went into the interaction wanting something very different out of it than what I, for what, what I thought I was going to go looking for when I first sought referral. And during that period of waiting, I was with one GP for the whole time. So uh, he obviously knew what was going on. Um, and I still think really that the, the purpose of a gender clinic should be, given that they're often mental health professionals more than anything else, should be about helping you to work out exactly what it is you want. And by the time I got there, I knew that I couldn't expect that to be what I would receive. And what was your experience like there? Um, well, um, my first few appointments were difficult. Um, <laughs> I um, took my, my genderqueer vicar came with me uh, for the first few appointments. And um, that helped a lot because I felt like I had somebody there who is better at being intimidating than I am <laughs> and to sort of back me up. Um, so therefore I, um, I kind of, I was more honest than I planned to be, if that makes sense. I sort of planned to go in and say, yes, I'm a binary woman, a bit, you know, sort of like trying to be really, really feminine in order to sort of pass by their standards as what it means to be a woman. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I sort of, so I sort of. I sort of did that a bit, but then I also said, like when they would like ask very direct questions about my gender, I would say, but it's more complicated than, than the framework that you're that you're, you seem currently to be working from uh, accommodates. Yeah, almost kind of combative, really, in a way. But sure. then later on, I started seeing another a different um, clinician at the same clinic who um, had a, mu a much different approach. I, I feel I feel like. Some of the clinicians seem to have an attitude that um, gender is a binary, that it matters what your genitals look like in order to be a proper woman or a proper man. So I, I, I felt like they were putting a lot of roadblocks in, in my way to getting to where I wanted to be, um, which, which isn't what would be classified by some people as a quote-unquote full transition. Um, either in that, although I basically live as a relatively binary woman, I don't identify as a binary woman, and there are certain medical interventions that I do want, but others that I don't, that lots of people do. I was very apprehensive about disclosing that I didn't want surgery, um, and uh, actually never disclosed to any of the psychiatrists I saw, only once I, I got moved to uh, Robin, who, who's a psychologist, did I um, mention that. And he was kind of like, oh, that's fine. <laughs> um, and um, yeah, um, one one example of the, the kinds of interactions that made it feel combative for me mm -hmm. uh, was the, the, the question of my name came up and I said, yes, I've changed it officially now. And he said, oh, well, but shouldn't you have changed it to Ruby? And I said, well, I have a cousin called Ruby and also no, because I feel like Rubes is the right name for me and I don't feel like Ruby is the right name for me and it's my name. Um, and he sort of started trying to persuade me saying that people would be better able to know what they were expecting if I used that name, uh, which I found very inappropriate because mm. I just, it's, it's my name. It, it's not, you know, 
uh, up for debate. I, Rubes, you've you've um, mentioned this, and and uh, I have a friend who um, has talked about attending gender clinic and and very much overrepresenting uh, herself, um, sort of becoming super feminine. Um, I think the the words she actually used was saying uh, dressing like a granny um, <laughs> to. To try and conform to someone else's idea of uh, what her gender would be in order to sort of successfully access those services. Um, and Emma Ben, you work a lot um, as a welfare advisor and you, you speak to, to many people. So uh, is, this, um, is this an issue that you've heard uh, raised elsewhere? It's certainly something that I think a lot of trans people who are accessing sort of transition related healthcare, gender identity clinics um, are aware of that. Um, and my sense is actually that it's that it's changing, but that it's it's changing in a sort of unpredictable way. So sort of some some places have got much better at this and others perhaps haven't. Um, but that certainly historically, there's been a strong sense that um, clinicians um, have an expectation of who is going to walk through the door um, in terms of what they think a trans man or a trans woman, um, how they should look, how they should live and so on. And that sometimes those clinicians might not have any sense of, of gender identities other than that. And as I say, this is certainly not at all the case with, with all clinicians, um, increasingly so. Um, but it leads to a situation where a lot of trans people feel that, particularly seeing kind of the, the, the stories of people who have gone through gender identity clinics five or ten years ago, that they must present themselves in um, you know a very stereotyped manner in order to be perceived as appropriately trans and therefore um, entitled to the the treatment that they need to to, to live, um, and it's it's sort of a pressure that. Um, so I, I know, for example, somebody who's identifying, uh, just looking at friend, friends, people that I know, the sort of speed with which um, a binary identifying trans man who um, sort of dresses in, in a certain way and has a girlfriend and does many, has a stereotypically masculine job, he would be um, referred for top surgery much more quickly than a friend of mine who was genderqueer, maintained a gender-neutral name and presentation and needed top surgery just as much to alleviate dysphoria and, um, it, you know, sort of facilitate sort of social integration, but had to wait many more years for the, for the same referral mm. because of not fitting the, the expectation of what somebody seeking that kind of intervention should be like. Yeah. Um, and that's in the gender clinic where you'd have thought that some um, people would have experience of this or at least thought about this. Um, how is it in the world of general practice where, you know, this is, people don't see this um, on a sort of day-to-day -day basis? You mentioned that um, you were with your GP for a year before you were able to, to access services at the gender clinic. So um, what was your experience there? I think... In my experience, um, I haven't had many experiences with GPs being uh, actually being transphobic. Um, I think they can be a bit unsympathetic, or I, you know, I 
I, in particular, that that GP who first referred me was a little bit unsympathetic about um, about things around um, the the administrative process, and also he I, I, he wasn't up to date on what the process was, and as a result, I was made to jump through extra hoops that didn't uh, didn't need to be right. um, jumped through. Um, so, so there was that. Um, other than that, my experience has mostly just been that it's kind of more the admin side where GPs can be a bit tricky. You've mentioned a little bit about the admin there, which I think sort of brings us um, onto the the question of pronouns. It seems like you know the systems, everything that's that's built in in primary care asks. Um, doctors to to kind of class someone as male or female um you know on all the forms and everything um so emma ben perhaps you could take us through um what you you've said in the article about um the use of pronouns Mm, so i think there's sort of two things that you've raised there there's about the sort of the issue around pronouns which is about which is really just about sort of respecting and mirroring the language that a patient uses to talk about themselves, which I think doctors are used to doing in in sort of lots of different ways, kind of going to where the patient's coming from to make sure they're speaking a language that's that's mutually understood. And I really think that that that, that using the the pronoun that 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 a, that a patient's most comfortable with is, is is just part of that basic respect really. Um, and then the sort of slightly separate issue that you've also raised about um, sort of admin forms and the sort of categorization. Um, so for, I mean, an example is the GP surgery I use. Uh, when I go to sign in for an appointment, um, they sort of filter through their database to find my appointment by asking me for my gender and my date of birth. And and they're, they're, of course, they, they only have have male and female as their two gender options. And, I'm, and it, it confuses me because obviously date of birth narrows down to sort of one 365th of their database, <laughs> whereas gender only splits it in two and um, I do wonder that the sort of the, the usefulness even of the admin system being set up that way whether it is entirely sort of um, thoughtlessness that that leads to the system being that way because I can't you know it doesn't immediately strike me as a particularly useful way of, of, of narrowing things down to, to find my appointment in a system um, and it sort of forces somebody to, to try and almost second guess uh, how they might have been reported or, mm-hmm, or recorded mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and i mean I, I, it has huge the, these sort of systematic factors have huge knock-on um effects uh, a genderqueer trans man of my acquaintance who has all of his nhs records uh, attached to, to to sort of a male gender marker basically was was unable uh, to get a cervical screening in the county uh, that he lived in um because that county just couldn't accept a, a cervical screening sample that didn't have a an f next to it ended up having to to travel to, to london to, to a specialist clinic to be able to get a sort of basic routine cervical smear done um which sort of seems a completely unintended sort of consequence of this system and and probably comes hand in hand with issues like um you know people who've had you know women who've had traumatic hysterectomies still getting uh, badgered because they haven't had their um their their cervical screening which they really must go for um you know the, the, it's obviously not just trans people that these kind of unthinking um sort of overgeneralizations mm-hmm. Uh, will impact. It's just I think we're the sort of the most acute case or the case where it becomes most apparent that these these ways of categorizing people just 
are insufficient for the purposes of a of a medic who needs to to understand people's anatomy and their and their physiology in more detail. Sure, um, and I also wanted to ask about the sort of the importance to to a trans person of being correctly gendered. I think there's a really nice um, quote in the uh, in the article, and I'll just read it out. Um, it says, one of the first things I did on meeting my new GP was tell him that I'm trans and use gender-neutral pronouns. 18 months later, he was reading his notes out to me as he typed them up, as usual, and he used the gendered pronoun for me, then immediately corrected himself and apologised. He'd been getting it right all along, and I hadn't even noticed. It was a lovely surprise, and I trust him even more. So I suppose that speaks to the importance of GPs um, doing, as you you said, and mirroring um, the language that, that trans people use. Mm. And I suppose this brings up the idea of of microaggressions and um, what it feels like to be misgendered. Um, are you able to to tell listeners about that at all? For, for me, as somebody who doesn't always tell people that I find they pronouns a lot more comfortable, um, it's very different to be misgendered by somebody who I haven't asked to use any different pronoun, who's just made an assumption about what my pronoun is by by looking at me. Um, that hurts in a very generalised way. It sort of it's another little sort of little little needle, little reminder of oh yeah, no, the world really isn't set up for people like me. But it's different. Um, if I've asked somebody or, or said to somebody, these are the pronouns that I'm most comfortable with, if they then, and an honest mistake is one thing, everybody makes them, I'm sure mm-hmm. I've mispronounced myself enough um, in the time, in, in, in uh, over the years, um, but... But when somebody will intentionally refuses to use certain pronouns for me, and those are the much more hurtful instances where people sort of either decide that my comfort is 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 much less important to them than their own slight unfamiliarity uh, with a with a way of speaking, or who sort of yeah promise in their promise a certain level of respect and supportiveness and then are unable to deliver it. Mm. I suppose that, that you know people might feel um, nervous or like they're being disrespectful um, if they ask about someone's gender or, or how uh, what pronoun um, or you know prefix they would they would like to use. Um, do you think that's a, a worry that's founded? I think that, that those are. Those are very different question. Asking about somebody's gender is quite a personal question in some ways and sometimes has a complex or an uncertain answer. Whereas what title should I use on this system or what pronoun should I use in this letter? Those are quite matter of fact questions that are not always, but I think are much easier to answer without necessarily, um, you know, sharing unwillingly of oneself or, or sort of being vulnerable in, in a in a difficult way mm. and and they're quite often sort of huge marks of 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 respect and safety um and uh related to that i suppose is is what you say almost at the beginning of of the article which is um don't ask unless you really need to know for for a specific medical reason it's thinking of through why you're asking for somebody's gender so in a in a sexual health screening context um somebody might ask me about the the gender of my sexual partners and i've asked many many people about this over the years and as far as i can tell what they're actually trying to get at is 
what 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 likelihood is there that I've engaged in certain kinds of high risk acts? And actually, my partner's genders has very little to do with that. And actually, um, you know, they're, they're, it, 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 the the question they're asking and the information they want aren't as closely linked as they think. And I think. Um, and comes to the example I was talking about before that sort of thinking of um, woman and people who need smear test as two completely overlapping circles on a Venn diagram when that's that's not the case at all for, for all sorts of reasons. Um, Rubes, do you have anything to, to add to that? So something that um, I think can confuse people is the idea that it's rude to ask too many questions about somebody's trans status. But that has more to do with the way that often people want to know lots about the details of uh, your identity and the, and maybe they're looking for well it feels like at least they're looking for gory details of traumatic experiences um, and also often questions about what your genitals look like which um, apart from in a medical context where it's relevant um, is far too personal a question to ask somebody but a pronoun asking somebody what pronoun to use or uh, just what is your gender identity um, that's just that's a mark of respect. It's the it's the complete opposite, and I can see why it's a confusing distinction if your experience is entirely a cisgender experience. But it's also a really important one to get the hang of. I suppose this is getting a bit more philosophical, but I wanted to ask it anyway. Um, in the UK, gender is medicalised. Um, you know, to officially change um, one's gender requires a process. Um, that involves uh, doctors. In other places, um, that doesn't happen, and and people can self-identify. Uh, do you think that's a big issue? Yes. Yes. Definitely. <laughs> I, I find it hard to think about this in terms that are not... Uh, I suppose because we've gone into the slightly more philosophical realm, I'm becoming slightly more of a scientist and slightly less of a patient but um my feeling is that um the only useful or the the well the, the only way we have of measuring someone's gender is to ask them therefore to ask a quote-unquote expert to take a control of that fundamental part of a person's sense of self away um, in order to somehow make sure, I don't know, I don't really know why. <laughs> what, what, why, ever, why ever it happens, uh, to, to do that is, um, I think, really um, unjustified uh, from, a med from a medical perspective. You know, diagnostically, it is really just a process of asking the question and then everything else is just icing, mm -hmm. really. There isn't a benefit to it and there are considerable harms um, the most significant of which I think is actually um, the sort of personal feeling of having that sense of agency taken away from you. Mm -hmm, the, mm -hmm. the, the right to be who you are on your own terms is so, and th th this is also part of why pronouns matter so much, is because as trans people, our right to um, define who we are in our own way and on our own terms in the way that everybody else can the rest of the time with no problem is taken away from us in little bits. It's like, um, you know, pronoun misuse here, um, wrong title there, 
you know, all of those things. Uh, it's like it takes it takes another blood sample and another blood sample, and then we're exsanguinated. Um, and I feel like one of the biggest quote unquote blood samples is that knowledge that if I want an F on my birth certificate, I would have to go and justify myself to people who don't know me, who don't know anything about my life or my gender, um, except some documentation that says that I've taken some hormones. Um, and that really is all they have to go on. Um, you know, and, and so I think that that, um, that in and of itself is a, is a really big problem. There's also the issue of the fact that in the UK, the uh, gender recognition panel is entirely made up of cis people, which I think mm -hmm. it's hard to argue that it's an expert panel. Um, because I, I honestly don't think that you can that you can consider yourself to be a group of experts on trans issues if you're all cisgender. Um, it just doesn't make sense. It's like having a group of experts on women's health who are all men. Do you think the medical community keeping such a tight hold on that damages that sort of therapeutic relationship between um, patients and, and their doctors? Yes. Yes, of course it does. Of course it does. If, if you, if there is a reason why doctor patient confidentiality exists in law and it is that, and, and, and it is a primarily a reason of medical ethics that in order for a patient to be able to be open enough with the clinician, they need to know that everything they say is going to be taken on their terms and going, is not going to be used against them. And by putting the power to define whether you're going to get access to the things you need, um, be it hormones or surgery or whatever, into the hands of a very small and difficult to access group of clinicians, um, completely and totally undermines that. Um, and adding the um, passports and driver's licenses and birth certificates with the gender recognition panel, um, on top of that, just makes it even worse. Mm -hmm. I mean, we've talked throughout this, this interview about um, non-binary uh, gender and, and gender issues, and um, it feels like, at least sociologically, uh, things are moving and a lot of younger people seem to be more comfortable questioning um, their gender mm. and really thinking about how they identify. Um, Emma Venn, you work a lot with, with young people, so um, mm. is that something that you've, you've noticed yourself? It's hard to say because I, I don't, you know, I've worked a lot with, with young people, but I've actually not necessarily got the um, older generation awareness to compare it to. Um, certainly it's, it's my, it's my sense that there's a lot of, um, you know, openness to difference um, and that for a lot of my students, the students that I, I, I sort of I provide welfare support for, there's not necessarily the sort of certainly the narrative that you see in the media quite a lot um, that um, you know, to discover that one is trans is a is a sort of terrible uh, you know it's a terrible thing that happens to you that you kind of discover you've you you you've against your will been signed up to a, a sort of terrible life of, of of suffering and discrimination and exclusion and that actually yes there are aspects of that in the sense that the, the the world is is sort of uh, 
really not at all well set up to to welcome and, and support um trans youth but at the same time there's still a sense of hope or possibility um that i certainly don't have the sense um, of always having existed that actually to, to to be trans might not necessarily be um sort of the worst thing that could possibly happen to somebody and in fact it might um you know, just be another aspect of human diversity that is interesting to explore. Yeah, and I can. I, can I add to that? Mm. Sure, of course. Um, because I, I feel like it's it's a tangent, really. But the point that Emma Ben is making about um, this idea that yeah, that being trans isn't some kind of disastrous life sentence to misery, um, I think is really really important for clinicians to understand as well. Because I think um, there there is a lot of uh, very, very bad, has to be said, very, very bad studies um, that claim that large proportions of trans kids will eventually uh, change their minds, quote unquote, um, and that um, that therefore one ought to be very, very slow. And a similar attitude also exists in adult services, as we've already talked about a little bit. And I think this idea that um, that people might change their minds and therefore you shouldn't do anything until you've, you know, uh, measured every possible thing you can measure is um, that it contains a logical, uh, a hidden logical assumption that, I, that doesn't hold, which is that to be trans is a bad thing and something that you that, that is like a bad clinical outcome. Um, and actually, you know, if um, for every two patients that transition, one transitions back. Um, issues of money notwithstanding, the uh, clinical outcome is still better than if neither of those patients were given um, respectful and timely access to transitional care. You've been listening to Emma Ben and Rubes talk about their experience of being trans in the healthcare system. And their article, I Am Your Trans Patient, is now available on bmj.com. As I said at the beginning, we have two linked articles, and the practice article on referral to gender services is also available online. If you've enjoyed this, you can subscribe to all of our podcasts on iTunes or wherever you get yours. We're available in most places now. Rate and review us. It lets us know what you want and helps others to find us. If you want more, you can also listen to our full back catalogue on SoundCloud. Just search for BMJ Talk Medicine. There are years worth of podcasts there, all for free. Thanks for listening.